Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk about the American dream of owning a house and how a particular part of that dream, the desire for single-family housing, has been a strong contributor to the inequality we see in home ownership. How do we define the communities we want for ourselves? And how do we balance that definition against the need to create opportunity for those who don't have it? We'll discuss it all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you've decided to join us. In the early 20th century, Americans, mostly in the suburbs and sometimes in cities, quickly became accustomed to a particular lifestyle. You probably know the line that became the American ideal. People wanted a house, a white picket fence, a two-car garage, and uh, maybe a dog. This model predominantly included upwardly mobile white people and came to be a signifier of the American dream. Notably, this living model developed via single-family zoning regulations or city ordinances that prevented non-single-family style homes from being built in certain areas. But the comforts constructed with the help of the zoning laws also came with costs, putting a further drag on things like poverty, segregation, homelessness, and it hinders access to wealth for new, younger home buyers. As a lot of scholarship has revealed in the last decade, exclusive suburban spaces undergirded by single-family zoning are often sites of what we call NIMBYism, which is an acronym that signals that wealthier people don't want to live in close proximity to those of a lower economic status. Recently, there's been pushback to this idea. In 2019, Minneapolis became the first city to abolish single-family zoning laws altogether. The same thing mostly happened this past year in the state of California. Now, because of how important zoning laws are in determining how neighborhoods are built and who's included in them, and because of the controversy they inspire, they reflect larger questions about our values. Where do our private rights end and our communal obligations begin? How do we consider who's part of our community and who we don't want in that community? And what type of person deserves entrance into these constructed pathways that lead to this American dream? That's where we begin the conversation today, talking about single-family zoning laws and the effect that they have on wealth, on access, and on opportunity. We've got a great guest today to help us wade our way through this conversation. Michael Manville is a professor of urban planning at the University of California in Los Angeles. Michael, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. So I want to start here. You argue very strongly against the absolute idea of single-family zoning laws. First, explain what these zoning laws are, and then tell me, why are you so opposed to them? Sure. So I think you did a good job in your introduction, sort of summarizing what the laws are. They're pretty straightforward. It's just, it's a part of a zoning regulation. And I would say that uh, in most cities in the country, most cities and towns, uh, most residential land is zoned single family or uh, and planners sometimes call it R1 zoning, a residential class one. And it's just a law that says that in this area, uh, nothing can be built except uh, the classic detached single-family home. So it's a zoning law that ensures 
that the entire neighborhood is composed of single family homes. And I think my objection to these laws and the objection that, that many of my colleagues have, <coughs> excuse me, has nothing to do with single family homes themselves. They're a perfectly acceptable uh, dwelling to live in. I, I grew up in one. I don't live in one right now, but I have lived in them during my adult life. It's It really is the idea that you can have a law saying that nothing else can be built. Hmm. And the reason that's a problem, and let me also add one other quick caveat. Uh, in many parts of the country, this doesn't pose a giant problem. Um, you know, if you're in a, a place where land is very inexpensive, uh, where there isn't a huge demand to live, um, you know, having a, having a law that that says only single family homes can be built uh, probably doesn't do much harm, but it also it probably doesn't change things very much. But if you're if you're where I am right now in California, if you're in parts of the Northeast, if you're in you know certain areas, other metropolitan areas where we've seen a lot of economic growth, where a lot of people would like to live. What single-family zoning does is it really drives up the minimum purchase price necessary to sort of uh, get a piece of a community. And because opportunity is so unevenly distributed across the United States, right? At any given time, um, there's, a, there's a handful of metropolitan areas that are really growing and offering a lot of jobs and opportunity, um, and, and other places are sort of contracting or, or staying stagnant. Um, and even within metropolitan areas at any given time, there are some places that just offer better schooling, they offer uh, less pollution and so forth. When you create a barrier uh, to mobility, either across or within metropolitan areas, um, you end up having a lot of adverse consequences that fall on uh, primarily lower income people and primarily people of color. Hmm. So one really one really way to think easy way to think about this is that if you have a, a piece of valuable land, um, like you might in coastal California or or you know outside of Boston or in some parts of of the Detroit suburbs, um, and you say okay, well by law, only one housing unit can go here. Um, what you've just done is you've said well one we're restricting the supply of housing right because there's nothing physically that would pre prevent you from putting up a duplex or a triplex or an apartment building. And so that, that lower supply makes the price of housing go up. And then because that one housing unit that you have built is also pretty big, um, that also raises the price. And so what, what we have is a situation where in places where housing is in very high demand, we have laws uh, that say it can really only be sold in very large portions. And that, that creates this perverse effect and it, it sort of re reinforces segregation and it really exacerbates problems of housing affordability. Hmm. So, so I want to talk specifically about that metropolitan context, the, the, sure. the urban context, and, and get you to talk just a little about what originally drove the idea of single-family housing in areas like this, in dense areas where you have many more people and mm -hmm. where, historically at least, you've had a broader spectrum of uh, people along the economic scale. In other words, cities are where you see uh, wealthier people living sometimes in pretty close proximity to people who are, are not wealthy. What was the drive toward the idea of single-family housing originally even related to the idea of trying to create uh, stratification. In other words, uh, w was it a way to, to keep some people away from others? Yeah, I, I would say that it certainly was in part, right? And I think it's, it's important throughout this whole discussion to really draw a distinction between single family housing, which is just a type of structure, and single family zoning, which is the regulation that says this is all we allow, mm -hmm. right? I, you know, one thing that I am not opposed to at all, I just have to reiterate this, is like someone living in a single family house, right? Again, perfectly fine. Um, and so I think the impulse to single family housing was just in part, people like space, you know, and, and as we, as, as transportation technology improved in the early 20th century, first with streetcars that, that created our first suburbs and then with automobiles, it became possible uh, for someone with, you know, a middle-class income 
to have a little bit more space. And I think the uh, attraction to that prospect was totally understandable. Um, what became that where the history gets a little darker is the idea that you would then try and protect that investment mm -hmm. um, and protect the, your idea of what the community was through regulations. And this was originally done uh, through what were called uh, deed restrictions and covenants. So that, that, that uh, the city would not have laws saying that, you know, you couldn't have an apartment building uh, in, the, in the days before zoning or when zoning was very, uh, was very new. But what was extremely common was that, that houses and neighborhoods would have uh, racial covenants that just said, oh, this is going to be a whites-only neighborhood. Right. Um, and in, in the Supreme Court decision in 1917, Buchanan versus Worley, uh, the Supreme Court actually struck that down as unconstitutional. And I'm not going to, I don't want to draw a completely direct line from Buchanan versus Worley to the rise of single family zoning, but I will say that the line is, is there's only a few breaks in it that, hmm. that shortly after that happened, you started to see in cities around the country, uh, the adoption of zoning laws that specifically said only, only low density single family zoning is allowed here. Right. So the, the very first uh, zoning laws, like sort of like the New York zoning law um, that, that is very famous in planning textbooks, didn't concern themselves that much with things like that. You know, New York was not a place that had single family homes to begin with. It, you know, there was a lot of things about height limits and stuff in that. You started to see the rise of explicitly single family, uh, single family zoning protections going into zoning laws after Buchanan versus Worley. And, and that actually led to, you know, for planning nerds out there, the, 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 the most famous court case about zoning, Euclid v. Ambler, in, uh, in the Supreme Court's history, was actually brought in part by civil rights activists who said that um, the use of single-family zoning was clearly just a, a way around Buchanan versus Worley. It was, a, it was a way to do segregation through the back door because it's it's a, it substituted a, a kind of class-based discrimination for a race-based discrimination. And the court famously rejected that argument and said that it sort of the die was cast. It said that cities had a, a legitimate interest in, in keeping some areas just for single family zones because the single family housing created a particular atmosphere. And the, the famous line from that court decision was that apartments would be, uh, the quote was mere parasites on the single family neighborhoods. Hmm. And armed with that, uh, cities could then go forward and, and, and use these laws to sort of delineate areas that would only be uh, single family. So the long short of this, the, the, the long of the short of this is that uh, these do have a pretty dark history. Like if you, if you dig just a little bit, um, you get right back into some of the, the more invidious uh, discrimination and racism in our country's past. Um, yeah. So I, I also want to talk about how these zoning laws have changed over over time. Have they gotten more pernicious, do you think? Or are we in a space where they are performing a different function even even on their face. In other words, uh, you, you were talking about that history of kind of uh, lashing back against uh, against this this court decision and 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 progressive legislation that that, that follows and things like that. Um, uh, where are we now with the idea of single family zoning laws? Do they are they are they motivated? by those same impulses as they were then? I don't think so. I, I think, you know, it's very important to understand that these have a very, in, in many instances, a very dark past. Um, and, and, and I think probably, you know, we're, we're, we've improved a lot along the racial dimension in the United States, but certainly we're far from perfect. And so I, I would not be surprised if there are some defenders of single family zoning out there who harbor this sort of racial animus as their primary reason uh, for wanting these laws. But, uh, but I don't think it would, there's any evidence to suggest that the typical person who lives in a single family neighborhood and would like to keep it that way does so out of racial fear. 
right? Uh, I, I think again, um, there's there's some of that, right? I mean, I think there's still an impulse towards segregation in this country, of course. But I also think one reason that these laws are do create problems is that at a certain point, they're in, the intention behind them doesn't matter anymore, right? When we talk about sort of the structural discrimination or structural racism, the I mean, the whole idea behind that uh, is that you perpetuate unequal outcomes almost regardless of whether anyone involved has that as their intention. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you could support single family zoning for reasons that I think most people would look at and say, well, on their face, I understand that. Yes, you like the neighborhood the way it is. Most of us can relate to that. Um, it is nice to have a good sized yard and it's, it's nice aesthetically if, if all your neighbors have a good sized yard as well. Um, but what that does, right, is it does sort of make it very difficult to enter that neighborhood. It drives up housing costs and those housing costs are reflected both inside and outside uh, that neighborhood, right? I mean, that's one of the big problems is that when you have a, an exclusive neighborhood in a growing metropolitan area, uh, and so as a result, it gets hard for people to move in there. They don't just bid up the price of housing in that neighborhood. They also end up, uh, people who can't get into that neighborhood end up going to a lower income neighborhood and bidding up the price of housing there, right? Mm -hmm. the, the high housing prices and values in one neighborhood also become high rent burdens for lower income people in a nearby neighborhood. And so the... I think that, you know, it's very hard to look into people's hearts, right? When they say like, I want to keep my neighborhood the way it is. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there's a whole range of motivations that are at work there. But I think the really important thing to understand is that almost regardless of those motivations, just empirically keeping these sorts of barriers in place just does create harm. Uh, and, and we don't have to understand or even cast a judgment on the, the, the desire to defend those barriers to understand that we would be doing some good if we removed them. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about our neighborhoods, what they look like, why they look the way they do, and whether the idea of requiring that only single-family housing gets built in our neighborhoods is a way of exacerbating housing inequality and wealth inequality in our country. Uh, tell us, what does your neighborhood look like? Do you live on a street with mostly or all single-family homes? Or do you have some multifamily units or apartments in your neighborhood? Do you like the way your neighborhood is set up? And what would it mean if it was allowed to have different kinds of housing, like apartments, additional dwelling units, townhomes, or condos near you. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll include you in the conversation that way. Call us and tell us about your neighborhood, the way it looks, and whether you would be okay with changing it. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Michael Manville. He's a professor of urban planning at UCLA. We're talking about single family zoning regulations, the requirements in many neighborhoods that if you're going to build a house, it has to be a single family house. It can't be an apartment. It can't be condos. These are things that I think many of us identify with the American dream, that ideal of the single family home with the fence in the yard and the garage and the driveway. But there is a downside to those kinds of requirements, and it's that it prevents a lot of people from having access to the home ownership that drives so much of the wealth in our society. It is a perpetuator of 
income inequality in our country. The question is, uh, how do we fix that? Does that mean we ought to get rid of single-family zoning uh, ordinances and, and requirements? Uh, does it mean that as we build new communities, we ought to think differently about what the requirements are for the types of housing that we might have there? We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Call and tell us about your neighborhood. Uh, do you live in a place that is all single-family housing? Do you live in a place where there is a mix of multi-unit uh, multifamily units and single-family units. Uh, give us a sense of what you think about the structure of your neighborhood and what you would think if there was a suggested change to that structure uh, to maybe give more people opportunity. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter. Put comments there, and uh, we'll try to include you in the conversation uh, that way. I want to start today with Ken in Sterling Heights. Ken, what's on your mind? Gentlemen, great, great show, great topic, and thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have a background in planning. I've worked for different municipalities, um, and so I've been exposed to this uh, conversation or items associated with this conversation uh, for quite some time. Uh, I currently reside in the neighborhood that is uh, built with single-family residential homes, R1, as you indicated, uh, for the <laughs> quote-unquote planning nerds out there. <laughs> um, I'm aware that uh, there has been social injustice in our country for a long time. There still exists social injustice in our country. But I can tell you that I've actually watched the neighborhood that I live in change dramatically. Um, and we have all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds of all kinds of colors that are living and choosing to live in single family residential areas, uh, including my own neighborhood here, which is something I'm very fond of. I, 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 I like that. And I think it's a good thing and it shows progress when it comes to planning, zoning communities, uh, there's a couple of caveats that we cannot ignore. And, and that is, you know, who are the people that are that are facilitating the changes or drawing up the master plans or uh, sitting on the councils and the planning commissions and the zoning board of appeals and these kinds of things? And then also, let's define what a single family is. That, that, that's so we can say a single family or R1 residential home. And there's oftentimes, uh, as, as uh, a planning professor knows, there's size limitations associated with that. So we've mm -hmm. got this tiny home movement growing. I've recently read we're like out in Seattle, they're opening up tiny homes, putting them into the residential neighborhoods and allowing some of the homeless folks to live there. There's creative solutions that we can take what we have right now and uh, introduce some creative solutions, I think, to get us um, to a, uh, a good place uh, in many areas. Hmm. Um, and again, it's, you know, corruption is huge. It's so it's so important, you know, in a neighborhood because it dictates a lot of different things that happen. I'll give you an example. You know, somebody will buy a thing. There'll be a single family residential uh, neighborhood that'll have been there for 20 years, or maybe it's brand new. It's about three to 600 feet off a, a main thoroughfare, mm -hmm. uh, which is a field right now. And all of a sudden it was commercial property. Somebody will come up and, and uh, yeah, they may have to build a wall to separate those two uses. But uh, what happens with, you know, uh, and, and, and this is why planning is so important when you build an apartment uh, or, or let's say it gets, the zoning gets changed. Zoning, by the way, can get changed. Sure. Uh, different things can happen. Enforcement can get uh, done. There's so much there. But, you know, what happens, uh, you know, to the youth when you affect one use in one area, it does have implications in other parts of the community as well. Sure. sure. So I, I guess without running on, I, I just want to say there's. There's creative solutions that can be done, taken with our current inventory that we have now, taken with what our planning is in the future that can hopefully create the spaces that are affordable and allow people to interact from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Hmm. Um, that's important. It's the right thing to do. And, and I think there's a lot of professional planners that feel the same way. Yeah, Ken, I really appreciate you calling and, and sharing your perspective, uh, which obviously comes from 
a good bit of experience and, and some real knowledge uh, about that. Uh, Michael Manville, I want to go back to uh, something Ken said early in his call about his own neighborhood and the way in which it has changed over over a period of time and that uh, it, it is now a, a, a pretty diverse place that it's got people uh, of different ethnic backgrounds and and some different socioeconomic backgrounds. Uh, just for reference, uh, Michael, Sterling Heights is a, a suburb here in Detroit in Macomb, uh, in Macomb County. Uh, it, it's a place that has for a very long time been very white and uh, is a place where I, I think it's fair to say they've struggled with the issue uh, of diversity. I, I, I guess what Ken's call reminds me of is how things maybe have changed or are changing uh, in terms of uh, opportunity and that uh, there are some of the other barriers, I guess, to home ownership that uh, poor people or people of color face are falling in significant ways. And so in that case, if we, if we take uh, Ken's assessment at, at face value, zoning isn't necessarily the problem, that there were other problems and there may still be other problems that keep people from accessing that American dream. But in this case, zoning doesn't sound, at least in a modern context, to be the problem. I'd love to have you react to that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, <laughs> I will uh, fully stipulate that that Ken knows more about uh, his neighborhood than I do. Um, but what I, I guess what I would say, I said earlier, right, that, that single family zoning is going to have different effects in different places. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Detroit metropolitan area um, is very different uh, than many of the areas that we where we really worry about housing affordability. Uh, that that, you know, Detroit. Um, has many problems, but I don't think a, a, a shortage of housing is one of them, right? I mean, if you, Detroit in general has had has, has struggled with losing its population. Sure, um, it has excess inventory. You know, when when I think about places where I'm like, oh my god, they are not building enough. Detroit does not come to mind, <laughs> right. right? And so, so, so that's an area where yes, if you were to roll back single family zoning, um, you probably would not see huge progressive impacts. Uh, at the same time. Um, you probably also don't need it, right? I mean, land values aren't super high there. And so uh, you could probably not have single family zoning in many parts of the Detroit metropolitan area. I mean, I'm sure there's some pockets where this, what I'm about to say wouldn't be true. Uh, and as a result, the built environment wouldn't change very much. Um, if you are on my street, however, <laughs> in West Hollywood, California, mm -hmm. um, a small bungalow will sell for $2 million, right? Right. Um, and that's a that's a house that 20 years ago uh, sold for a, a small fraction of that, right? Because the economy has taken off like a rocket, uh, and the zoning has frozen my neighborhood in place, right? And the demand has gone up, and the supply won't. And when that happens, the price will go up, right? And that's also true of the neighborhood where I grew up, outside of Boston. Mm -hmm. It's true in New York, and it's true in lots of places where lots of people want to move. Uh, because these are the places that are offering a lot of opportunity. Yeah. And so there really is a lot of geographic variance that we're talking about. And, and, and so absolutely, you know, there's, there's places where this laws like this could go away um, and you wouldn't see a huge change. Um, but precisely for that reason, um, that's another argument for not having them on the books. Right, because right. when you do have a law in the books that doesn't do very much, you do create an opportunity for a little bit of corruption, right? As as Ken pointed out, so so yeah, I mean, I think uh, the the presence of a law, a strong amount of demand, is what really makes these barriers uh, harmful. Yeah, uh, Ken, again, really appreciate the call and uh, the really informed uh, information and uh, comments that you shared with us. Uh, let's go next to Sharon in Birmingham. Sharon, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Steve. Mm -hmm. um, thank you for taking my call. I'm a resident of Birmingham, and we just on Tuesday, we had an election for three new city commissioners. And there was quite a divide among the people that were running, some that were um, strongly opposing what is called 
the Birmingham 2040 plan hmm. and um, the other candidates that supported the 2040 plan. The plan has elements in it that include um, multiple family housing in cer- to rezone certain areas of our city hmm. to allow for multiple family housing. And you know, lots of debate about it, you know, what will be the effect on our property values and the traffic and, you know, um, this and that and the other thing. My perspective as a resident of Birmingham for nearly 50 years in a single family home is that as I age, I might not want to stay in this home. And if there were opportunities to move into an apartment or a condo, in the community that I have supported with my tax dollars <laughs> for improvement in parks and the library and other municipal services, I'd like to stay in the community where I have roots and that <laughs> I have paid into already. So <laughs> that's, that's so, my comment. About, so Sharon, um, I... I, 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 I'm really glad you called because I didn't I didn't know about this issue in in Birmingham. But but tell me what happened on election day. The the three uh, new city commissioners um, were they people who embraced this idea of changing the zoning laws, or people who who said that they shouldn't? One of the candidates um, was in opposition to the some of the elements of the 2040 plan Mm -hmm. and two of the um, elected officials uh, support it with Hmm. caveats, you know, know, there's a lot in it about development of the downtown and, you know, there are other elements in the plans that are outside of housing, but, um, you know, not, not, any of the candidates completely endorse the 2040 plan. They, yeah. you know, it's in its second draft now, right. and public comment from citizens and businesses are welcome. So, you know, if yeah. residents in the city have an opinion about it, they should, <laughs> this yeah. is the time. Raise yeah, your hand, right? Is, yeah. yeah, raise your Sharon. hand. Sharon, I really, I really appreciate the call and and you're sharing what's going on there in in Birmingham. Uh, Michael Manville, again, just for your reference, Birmingham is uh, one of the most well-to-do suburbs uh, here in Detroit, in a different county, in Oakland County, which is actually the wealthiest county in in the state. Uh, this idea of changing zoning laws there. Um, Sharon didn't didn't make reference to this, but but almost certainly would, you know, invoke these these concerns and discussions first about economics, uh, because property values are really important to the people who live uh, in the mostly single family housing that exists in in Birmingham. But this would this would get to race as well. Uh, Birmingham is a place where you are starting to see African-Americans move in, Uh, that the school district there uh, captures uh, some other communities that are a little more diverse than uh, Birmingham. And those kids uh, go to the the schools there in Birmingham and they've had some some dust ups about uh, about that diversity and the changes there. Uh, the zoning conversation, again, I think is kind of uh, at the nexus of, of those things, but it, it, I'm certain that uh, that it's still kind of in shadow. In other words, uh, people are talking about zoning, but they're really talking about other things. Oh, I think that's right. You know, I mean, I think I said earlier that um, it would probably be not accurate to say that Um, most conversations about zoning are really about race, right? I mean, I think a lot of people, when they talk about traffic, they really are concerned about traffic. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's equally accurate to say at a municipal level that a lot of conversations about race actually happen as conversations about zoning, right? That it's, you know, we are no longer in, you know, uh, it's it's a very good thing, the the time period of of 1915, where you could just say it's time for us to have racial covenants, right? Mm -hmm. Like we've, um, and, and so what you what you can say if you harbor those concerns and anxieties uh, in, in, in contemporary America is that, you know, you're concerned about neighborhood change, 
right? And I, I mean, I do want to emphasize not all conversations concerned about neighborhood change are about race, mm-hmm. but a lot of concerns about race get expressed uh, in as concerns about neighborhood change and concerns about zoning. I mean, and the fact of the matter is that um, the intersection of of race and income in the United States is still sufficiently tightly correlated that if you use your zoning to make your community sufficiently expensive, um, you will probably keep your community almost entirely white. Hmm. There's no getting around that. You know, we're again, we're we're, ma- we're making some progress, uh, but if you put a, a really big fat entry fee into your community and therefore into your school district by saying that you can only build one, you know, one piece of housing on one big piece of land, um, you will end up either intentionally or unintentionally with a community that's largely white. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking with UCLA professor Michael Manville about zoning, single-family zoning regulations in our nation and what effect they have on economic opportunity, uh, on race inequality. Uh, We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones. Joe in Holland, John on the east side, Jim and Wayne, Jay in Detroit. We will hear from you next if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or go to Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Michael Manville, who is a professor of urban planning at UCLA. We're talking about single-family zoning regulations, uh, the idea that neighborhoods should be built with houses that have sufficient space and yards and fences and garages and driveways. It's part of the American dream in a lot of ways, but we're talking about the ways in which that dream and enforcing that dream on communities uh, sometimes leaves a lot of people out of that dream and it exacerbates uh, economic inequality and racial inequality in housing. Uh, We want to hear from you during this conversation call and tell us about your neighborhood. Do you live in a place that is all single family housing? Or do you live in a place where there's a mix of housing, maybe multi-family units in addition uh, to single-family housing? Tell us what you feel about the state of that neighborhood, the structure of that neighborhood, and whether you'd be open to the idea of changing it. Uh, If you live in a place that is just single-family residences, would you be open to the idea of apartments or condos uh, being built to try to give access uh, to people who maybe don't have as much money, as much access to wealth uh, as the people who are able to afford uh, single-family housing? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to include you in the show that way. I want to go to a Twitter comment first and then do a call. Joe on Twitter says, five Ann Arbor City Council seats were decided on this issue in 2020. The pro-single-family housing side lost across the board when videos showed up comparing their rhetoric to the rhetoric of Donald Trump. Uh, I want to go to Jim and Wayne, who wants to talk about the same issue. Jim, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, I grew up in Ann Arbor and used to live there. My kids still go to school there. So um, your Twitter response, it is such a hot topic. And uh, it's just on fire on social media and uh, with my friends. And it's interesting because some of my best friends, uh, very liberal, 
um, will vote and did vote for um, affordable housing um, as long as it's not going to touch um, single-family zoning. So it's, you know, the, they can't imagine, you know, changing these neighborhoods that they love so much, but they would really literally be willing to do anything else for affordable housing except that. And my personal take on it is a bit extreme, but I think single-family zoning is um, unethical at this point, both for affordable housing and but environmentalism, which people don't talk about, uh, it just doesn't make any environmental sense, hmm. um, no matter what, you know, the future of the grid looks like. So, so Jim, but, uh, Jim, can you give me just a little more information about what is going to change in Ann Arbor as a result of this election, uh, this election last year? Well, I still I mean, I, I'm 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 kind of cynical. So I. <laughs> I, I feel like the forces that are for single-family zoning, despite that election, which I, I think is accurate, um, I, I I don't think I, I think through lawsuits and any other means. I think <laughs> I hate to use this phrase, but I think by any means necessary, the single-family housing advocates are gonna hmm. you know fight this tooth and nail, and um, they've got a lot of pull. And you know, again, most of them are liberal Democrats, so. It's a very ironic uh, yeah. exercise here. Yeah. Jim, I really I really love uh, the information you shared with us uh, in the call. Thanks so much for for reaching out. Uh, Michael Manville, Ann Arbor is another really interesting uh, municipality here in southeast Michigan. It is, of course, the home to the University of Michigan's main campus. Uh, and it's a place where uh, a tech boom and some other things have really increased the amount of wealth that that exists in the city, and that has driven real estate prices absolutely bonkers. Uh, it is very, very difficult uh, for anybody who is not walking around with about a half million dollars cash in their pockets uh, to buy a house uh, in, in Ann Arbor. Uh, this this debate about uh, single family zoning regulations is is unfolding. In, in that context, uh, which, again, seems to me to, to really reinforce your point about how uh, that tool uh, is a, a lever. I mean, it, it really has a direct effect on uh, accessibility, uh, affordability, and, and, and opportunity for people who are, in a lot of ways, just, just locked out of the idea of home ownership. That's right. And not even just home ownership. I mean, what it, it, it can lock people out of the community entirely. Sure. You know, the, 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 I think a lot of what the caller said, you know, resonated and, and, it, and is reflective of, of things that have happened across the country. Right. Um, I mean, you have this situation where uh, a community's economy has grown. And so uh, the, there's a lot more money in the community. There's a lot more demand to live there. And then you have this law uh, that prevents the housing market from responding to that new demand in the most sensible way, right? And the most sensible way to do it would be to look at land that is currently underused, right? Not developed very intensively and say, okay, well, a lot of people wanna live here. So let's take this, this big parcel of land that right now only holds just one big old house and let's put a fourplex on it, right? And once you don't do that, Right. I mean, again, when demand goes up, something else has to go up too. It can either be the supply of housing or it can be the housing's price. And when the, you let the price of housing go up, then if you're lucky enough to live there already, um, you become wealthier. And if you're not lucky enough to live there already, or if you're not lucky enough to own there already, you either have a hard time getting in or your rent rises. And this, this becomes a terrible situation. It becomes a terrible situation because people who have lived there for a long time, but who rent now are really struggling. Uh, people who really would like to be there because they, they want to go to the University of Michigan or take a job there or something like that, um, now have a hard time affording the housing they would need to do so. And as the as the caller said, that's, this has environmental consequences. Maybe they, they buy further out and they have to drive in more every day. Uh, but the... The, the the main thing, right, is that you you fundamentally, you, you've, you've given yourself a scarcity of housing that's needless. And what that does, in addition to driving up the price of housing, 
is that it actually turns a lot of people against prosperity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of people probably in Ann Arbor right now who felt like they were doing better when the city was doing worse. And that's a terrible thing to have happen. Yeah. And yeah. it's just completely a function of the fact that we have these laws that don't let us respond to good fortune by building more housing and letting us accept more neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a really, that's a really interesting dynamic, uh, that you're putting your finger on there, uh, Michael. Let's go back to the phones here. Let's go to Fred in Farmington Hills. Fred, what's on your mind? Good morning. Hi. Um, or I should, I shouldn't say good morning, but anyway, I live in a very diverse neighborhood. I mean, it's, uh, there's Hindu, Muslim, Chaldean, Sikh, uh, black, white, everything in between, um, <laughs> But it's also a wonderful neighborhood because it has big common areas. And when I walk those common areas, I, I see all this vast expanse of green and, and think, well, this is kind of wasted property where we're paying a lot of money to cut the grass. And does it really make sense? On the other hand, my particular home backs up to an apartment complex uh, that was rezoned for uh, high density. At, at some point, it was supposed to be single family. and uh, that's the problem for me in that uh, the noise and the fact that the apartment complex uses the area behind my fence to stage uh, equipment and uh, trucks are coming and going all the time. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, on the holidays, the apartment complex people blow off their fireworks and I pick bottle rockets off my roof. I'm afraid I'm gonna catch on fire. Uh, People are doing burnouts in the parking lot over there. It's I'm kind of kind of between the best of two worlds. Huh. So yeah. so Fred, uh, paradox. Fred, I'm I'm glad you called, and I'm glad you're you're sharing not just your experience but uh, your feelings about it. What what does that mean for you in terms of uh, your property and your property values, and and whether you're worried about the, the ability to stay in the neighborhood uh, over time. Yeah, well, I'm at an age, I'm going to be 80 in, in December, and, mm. and like one of your earlier callers, at some point I'm going to transition to an apartment or, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. something other than a single-family home. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of torn. You know, I, I, I can appreciate the... And I've lived in apartments many times before it's yeah. it's not not i don't find it particularly uh a bad way to live it's a it's a great way to live but uh, uh as far as the value of my property i i don't have too much concern because yeah. it is a very desirable neighborhood from the yeah. standpoint of children we have a great uh we have a great grade school close by mm-hmm. that's been voted one of the most diverse in the in the area and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's, yeah. I feel good living here, but uh, yeah. Uh, now, Fred, I, I I love that you called and and shared that experience, Michael Manville. Uh, this is this is an area that has expanded the the kind of housing that uh, that was permitted to be built there. It, it's not a recent phenomenon. Uh, it's something that happened over over time. I think Fred's experience uh, is is maybe the it, it seems to capture both the best and maybe the worst of of what people's ideas and fears might be about that kind of change. Well, sure, and and I think it sounds like the caller happens to live behind a not very good apartment building. Um, and the fact is that that happens, and it also happens that sometimes people move next door to you in a single-family home, and they're not the world's best neighbors. <laughs> you don't love your neighbors. And they're, they're loud, and this happens, right? It's, uh, but I would hate to think that anyone listening would think that this is the story of all apartment buildings. Uh, I am talking to you from my apartment building. I live in one, and mm-hmm. I can tell you that I don't do burnouts or, or <laughs> fire bottle rockets <laughs> at my neighbors, and none of my neighbors do either. We're just normal human beings like everyone else who just happen to live in a different kind of structure. Um, and I really think that the way we talk about apartment buildings is very telling. Mm-hmm. That that if you you have a neighbor on your street and your single-family home who makes a lot of noise, it's just your troublesome neighbor. 
Um, but if it's coming from an apartment building, somehow it's just emblematic of the building. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have to sort of protect the single family neighborhoods. <laughs> and it's like, I'm just, I want to tell everybody in your audience that, that people who live in apartments and condos, uh, they really are humans. Um, and they just, you know, some are good, some are bad. And it's just, it's just a different way to live uh, in, in a physical structure. And it doesn't mean that you're automatically going to have trouble um, right. if someone builds an apartment. And, I, and, and just to, 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 to add on to that, ending single family zoning doesn't mean you have to have an apartment building. Sure. Right. It could mean you have some nice townhomes. It could mean you have duplexes. It means you have a little garden apartment complex. Right. So the, this immediate jump that we sometimes make to, well, they're, they're, they're going to come take down my single family house and build Manhattan. No, of course not. <laughs> right. It's just, there's just going to be something other, the option of something other than a detached single family home. Okay, Michael Manville, it was really great to have you with us for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. That is going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson is going to join the show to talk about what's happening to make sure that our votes are protected. She is in the mode of talking about a war to protect voting in America. We'll ask her about what she thinks is happening and what she's doing to push back. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday. <laughs>